This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe, Volume 2, Chapter 10, Part 1 of 2. And shall no lay of death with pleasing murmur soothe her parted soul? Shall no tear wet her grave? Sayers. On the following morning, Emily went early to the apartment of Madame Montoni, who had slept well, and was much recovered. Her spirits had also returned with her health, and her resolution to oppose Montoni's demands revived, though it yet struggled with her fears, which Emily, who trembled for the consequence of further opposition, endeavoured to confirm. Her aunt, as has been already shown, had a disposition which delighted in contradiction, and which taught her, when unpleasant circumstances were offered to her understanding, not to inquire into their truth, but to seek for arguments by which she might make them appear false. Long habit had so entirely confirmed this natural propensity that she was not conscious of possessing it. Emily's remonstrances and representations therefore roused her pride instead of alarming or convincing her judgment and she still relied upon the discovery of some means by which she might yet avoid submitting to the demand of her husband. Considering that if she could once escape from his castle, she might defy his power, and obtaining a decisive separation live in comfort on the estates that yet remained for her, she mentioned this to her niece, who accorded with her in the wish, but differed from her as to the probability of its completion. She represented the impossibility of passing the gates, secured and guarded as they were, and the extreme danger of committing her design to the discretion of a servant who might purposely betray or accidentally disclose it. Montoni's vengeance would also disdain restraint if her intention was detected, and though Emily wished as fervently as she could to regain her freedom and return to France, she consulted only Madame Montoni's safety and persevered in advising her to relinquish her settlement without braving further outrage. The struggle of contrary emotions, however, continued to rage in her aunt's bosom, and she still brooded over the chance of effecting an escape. While she thus sat, Montoni entered the room, and without noticing his wife's indisposition, said that he came to remind her of the impolicy of trifling with him, and that he gave her only till the evening to determine whether she would consent to his demand, or compel him, by a refusal, to remove her to the east turret. He added that a party of cavaliers would dine with him that day, and that he expected that she would sit at the head of the table, where Emily also must be present. Madame Montoni was now on the point of uttering an absolute refusal, but suddenly considering that her liberty during this entertainment, though circumscribed, might favor her plans, she acquiesced, with seeming reluctance, and Montoni soon after left the apartment. His command struck Emily with surprise and apprehension, who shrank from the thought of being exposed to the gaze of strangers such as her fancy represented these to be, and the words of Count Morano now again recollected it did not soothe her fears. When she withdrew to prepare for dinner, she dressed herself with even more simplicity than usual that she might escape observation, a policy which did not avail her, 
for as she repassed her aunt's apartment she was met by Mentoni, who censured what he called her prudish appearance, and insisted that she should wear the most splendid dress she had, even that which had been prepared for her intended in nuptials with Count Morano, and which, it now appeared, her aunt had carefully brought with her from Venice. This was made not in the Venetian, but in the Neapolitan fashion, so as to set off the shape and figure to the utmost advantage. In it, her beautiful chestnut tresses were negligently bound up in pearls, and suffered to fall back again on her neck. The simplicity of a better taste than Madame Montoni's was conspicuous in this dress, splendid as it was, and Emily's unaffected beauty never had appeared more captivingly. She had now only to hope that Montoni's order was prompted not by any extraordinary design, but by an ostentation of displaying his family richly attired to the eyes of strangers, yet nothing less than his absolute command could have prevailed with her to wear a dress that had been designed for such an offensive purpose, much less to have worn it on this occasion. As she descended to dinner, the emotion of her mind threw a faint blush over her countenance, and heightened its interesting expression, for timidity had made her linger in her apartment till the utmost moment, and when she entered the hall, in which a kind of state dinner was spread, Montoni and his guests were already seated at the table. She was then going to place herself by her aunt, but Montoni waved his hand, and two of the cavaliers rose and seated her between them. The eldest of these was a tall man, with strong Italian features, an aquiline nose, and dark, penetrating eyes that flashed with fire when his mind was agitated, and even in its state of rest retained somewhat of the wildness of the passions. His visage was long and narrow, and his complexion of a sickly yellow. The other, who appeared to be about forty, had features of a different cast, yet Italian, and his look was slow, subtle, and penetrating. His eyes of a dark grey were small and hollow. His complexion was a sunburnt brown, and the contour of his face, though inclined to oval, was irregular and ill-formed. Eight other guests sat round the table who were all dressed in a uniform, and had all an expression more or less of wild fierceness, of subtle design, or of licentious passions. As Emily timidly surveyed them, she remembered the scene of the preceding morning, and again almost fancied herself surrounded by banditti. Then, looking back to the tranquillity of her early life, she felt scarcely less astonishment than grief at her present situation. The scene in which they sat assisted the illusion. It was an ancient hall, gloomy from the style of its architecture, from its great extent, and because almost the only light it received was from one large gothic window, and from a pair of folding doors which, being open, admitted likewise a view of the west rampart, with wild mountains of the Apennine beyond. The middle compartment of this hall rose into a vaulted roof enriched with fretwork and supported on three sides by pillars of marble. Beyond these, long colonnades retired in gloomy grandeur till their extent was lost in twilight. The lightest footsteps of the servants as they advanced through these were returned in whispering echoes, and their figures, seen at a distance imperfectly through the dusk, frequently awakened Emily's imagination. She looked alternately at Montoni, at his guests, and on the surrounding scene, and then, remembering her dear native province, her pleasant home, 
and the simplicity and goodness of the friends whom she had lost, grief and surprise again occupied her mind. When her thoughts could return from these considerations, she fancied she observed an air of authority towards his guests, such as she had never before seen him assume. Though he had always been distinguished by a haughty carriage, there was something also in the manners of the strangers that seemed perfectly, though not servilely, to acknowledge his superiority. During dinner the conversation was chiefly on war and politics. They talked with energy of the state of Venice, its dangers, the character of the reigning doge, and of the chief senators, and then spoke of the state of Rome. When the repast was over they rose, and each filling his goblet with wine from the gilded ewer that stood beside him, drank, Success to our exploits! Montoni was lifting his goblet to his lips to drink this toast, when suddenly the wine hissed, rose to the brim, and as he held the glass from him, it burst into a thousand pieces. To him, who constantly used that sort of Venice glass which had the quality of breaking upon receiving poison liquor, a suspicion that some of his guests had endeavored to betray him instantly occurred, and he ordered all the gates to be closed, drew his sword, and looking round on them, who stood in silent amazement, exclaimed, Here is a traitor among us. Let those that are innocent assist in discovering the guilty. Indignation flashed from the eyes of the cavaliers, who all drew their swords, and Madame Montoni, terrified at what might ensue, was hastening from the hall when her husband commanded her to stay. But his further words could not now be distinguished, for the voice of every person rose together. His order that all the servants should appear was at length obeyed, and they declared their ignorance of any deceit, a protestation which could not be believed, for it was evident that, as Montoni's liquor, and his only, had been poisoned, a deliberate design had been formed against his life, which could not have been carried so far towards its accomplishment without the connivance of the servant who had the care of the wine-ewers. This man, with another, whose face betrayed either the consciousness of guilt or the fear of punishment, Montoni ordered to be chained instantly and confined in a strong room which had formerly been used as a prison. Thither, likewise, he would have sent all his guests, had he not foreseen the consequence of so bold and unjustifiable a proceeding. As to those, therefore, he contended himself with swearing that no man should pass the gates till this extraordinary affair had been investigated, and then sternly bade his wife retire to her apartment, whither he suffered Emily to attend her. In about half an hour he followed to the dressing-room, and Emily observed with horror his dark countenance and quivering lip, and heard him denounce vengeance on her aunt. "'It will avail you nothing,' said he to his wife, to deny the fact. "'I have proof of your guilt. Your only chance of mercy rests on a full confession. There is nothing to hope from sullenness or falsehood. Your accomplice has confessed all.' Emily's fainting spirits were roused by astonishment as she heard her aunt accused of a crime so atrocious that she could not for a moment admit the possibility of her guilt. Meanwhile, Madame Montoni's agitation did not permit her to reply. Alternately, her complexion varied from livid paleness to crimson flush, and she trembled, but whether with fear or with indignation, it were difficult to decide. "'Spare your words,' said Montoni seeing her about to speak. Your countenance makes full confession of your crime. You shall be instantly removed to the east turret. This accusation, said Madame Montoni, speaking with difficulty, 
is used only as an excuse for your cruelty. I disdain to reply to it. You do not believe me guilty. Signor, said Emily solemnly, this dreadful charge I would answer with my life is false. Nay, Signor, she added, observing the severity of his countenance. This is no moment for restraint on my part. I do not scruple to tell you that you are deceived, most wickedly deceived, by the suggestion of some person who aims at the ruin of my aunt. It is impossible that you could yourself have imagined a crime so hideous. Montoni, his lips trembling more than before, replied only, If you value your own safety, addressing Emily, you will be silent. I shall know how to interpret your remonstrances should you persevere in them. Emily raised her eyes calmly to heaven. Here is, indeed, then, nothing to hope, said she. Peace, cried Montoni, or you shall find there is something to fear. He turned to his wife, who had now recovered her spirits, and who vehemently and wildly remonstrated upon this mysterious suspicion. But Montoni's rage heightened with her indignation, and Emily, dreading the event of it, threw herself between them and clasped his knees in silence, looking up in his face with an expression that might have softened the heart of a fiend, whether he was hardened by a conviction of Madame Montoni's guilt, or that a bare suspicion of it made him eager to exercise vengeance, he was totally and alike insensible to the distress of his wife and to the pleading looks of Emily, whom he had made no attempt to raise, but was vehemently menacing both, when he was called out of the room by some person at the door. As he shut the door, Emily heard him turn the lock and take out the key, so that Madame Montoni and herself were now prisoners and she saw that his designs became more and more terrible. Her endeavors to explain his motives for this circumstance were almost as ineffectual as those to soothe the distress of her aunt, whose innocence she could not doubt, but she at length accounted for Montoni's readiness to suspect his wife by his own consciousness of cruelty towards her, and for the sudden violence of his present conduct against both before even his suspicions could be completely formed by his general eagerness to effect suddenly whatever he was led to desire and his carelessness of justice or humanity in accomplishing it. Madame Montoni for some time again looked round in search of a possibility of escape from the castle and conversed with Emily on the subject, who was now willing to encounter any hazard, though she forbore to encourage a hope in her aunt, which she herself did not admit. How strongly the edifice was secured, and how vigilantly guarded, she knew too well, and trembled to commit their safety to the caprice of the servant whose assistance they must solicit. Old Carlo was compassionate, but he seemed to be too much in his master's interest to be trusted by them. Annette could of herself do little, and Emily knew Ludovico only from her report. At present, however, these considerations were useless, Madame Montoni and her niece being shut up from all intercourse, even with the persons whom there might be these reasons to reject. In the hall, confusion and tumult still reigned. Emily, as she listened anxiously to the murmur that sounded along the gallery, sometimes fancied she heard the clashing of swords, and when she considered the nature of the provocation given by Montoni and his impetuosity, it appeared probable that nothing less than arms would terminate the contention. Madame Montoni, having exhausted all her expressions of indignation, and Emily hers of comfort, they remained silent in that kind of breathless stillness which, in nature, often succeeds to the uproar of conflicting elements, a stillness 
like the morning that dawns upon the ruins of an earthquake. An uncertain kind of terror pervaded Emily's mind. The circumstances of the past hour still came dimly and confusedly to her memory, and her thoughts were various and rapid, though without tumult. From this state of waking visions she was recalled by a knocking at the chamber door, and inquiring who was there heard the whispering voice of Annette. "'Dear madame, let me come in.' "'I have a great deal to say,' said the poor girl. "'The door is locked,' answered the lady. "'Yes, ma'am, but do, pray, open it.' "'The signor has the key,' said Madame Montoni. "'Oh, blessed virgin, what will become of us?' exclaimed Annette. "'Assist us to escape,' said her mistress. "'Where is Ludovico?' "'Below in the hall, ma'am, amongst them all, fighting with the best of them.' "'Fighting? Who are fighting?' cried Madame Montoni. "'Why, the signor, ma'am.' and all the signors, and a great many more. "'Is any person much hurt?' said Emily, in a tremulous voice. "'Hurt? Yes, mademoiselle. There they lie bleeding, and the swords are clashing, and, oh, holy saints, do let me in, ma'am, they are coming this way, I shall be murdered!' "'Fly!' cried Emily, "'fly! We cannot open the door!' Annette repeated that they were coming, and in the same moment fled. "'Be calm, madame,' said Emily, turning to her aunt. "'I entreat you to be calm.' I am not frightened, not frightened in the least. Do not you be alarmed. You can scarcely support yourself, replied her aunt. Merciful God, what is it they mean to do with us? They come perhaps to liberate us, said Emily. Signor Montoni perhaps is, is conquered. The belief of his death gave her spirits a sudden shock, and she grew faint as she saw him in imagination expiring at her feet. They are coming, cried Madame Montoni. I hear their steps. They are at the door. Emily turned her languid eyes to the door, but terror deprived her of utterance. The key sounded in the lock. The door opened, and Montoni appeared, followed by three ruffian-like men. Execute your orders, said he, turning to them, and pointed to his wife, who shrieked, but was immediately carried from the room, while Emily sunk, senseless on a couch by which she had endeavored to support herself. When she recovered, she was alone, and recollected only that Madame Montoni had been there, together with some unconnected particulars of the preceding transaction, which were, however, sufficient to renew all her terror. She looked wildly round the apartment, as if in search of some means of intelligence concerning her aunt, while neither her own danger, or an idea of escaping from the room, immediately occurred. When her recollection was more complete, she raised herself and went, but with only a faint hope, to examine whether the door was unfastened. It was so, and she then stepped timidly out into the gallery, but paused there, uncertain which way she should proceed. Her first wish was to gather some information as to her aunt, and she at length turned her steps to go to the lesser hall, where Annette and the other servants usually waited. End of Volume 2 Chapter 10, Part 1 of 2